Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Food podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Diana Garvin about her book, Feeding Fascism, which is out from the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Feeding Fascism, the Politics of Women's Food Work, is an expansive and multifaceted look at women's food work in fascist Italy. Using less explored archives, Garvin has assembled a diverse set of sources, including diaries, work songs, cookbooks, kitchen plans and utensils, factory records, and more, to tell the story of how women negotiated the daily tasks of producing and preparing food under a fascist regime, its autarkic policies, and, as the war progressed, increasingly dire food rationing and shortages. Feeding fascism is particularly attentive to the intersections of class, gender, and the politics and realities of women's food work, as well as to the material culture of life under fascism and what it says about the dialectic between practicality and patriotism, resistance, and consent. Okay, so Dr. Garvin, welcome to the podcast. Um, First off, I'd like to ask you uh, how you became interested in the project that eventually became Feeding Fascism. Of course. I began this project before I even knew what culinary history was. I loved to cook from when I was very small and had a beloved adopted grandma who had me making blueberry muffins from when I could sit upright. In high school, I wanted to learn how to cook from different cooks from different chefs around Boston, where I'm originally from. So many folks spoke Portuguese, Spanish, Italian as their native language, and I started trying to learn languages in high school so that I could learn how to cook from these different people. As I did, they started handing me cookbooks and saying, well, you know, there's actually all this political history that's bound up in the ingredients and the preparations and the timing. So I had always looked at food as being something intensely political and had studied it onto college, into graduate school, but it really came out of a love of cooking. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I don't think I've ever sort of met somebody who had that experience of seeing food as political from so young. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I think it shows up in the book. Um, and in particular, I think also this interest in uh, not only the politics of food, but how that intersects with gender is something that's very prominent from early on. And so I want to jump right into that. Um, because in your introduction, you lay out uh, the approach that you're taking throughout the book to the politics of women's food work. And we're talking specifically about fascist Italy. Um, and you lay out a couple of keywords and concepts, and I'm hoping you could unpack these for us just to get us started. So these are uh, women's food work, tabletop politics, and then you have this interesting uh, sort of juxtaposition of food as lens and fascism as magnifying glass. Let me start with women's food work since that's something that comes up right in the title of feeding fascism and the politics of women's food work. 
typically when we talk about food work, it's the work that takes place in kitchens and cafeterias, the chopping, the kneading, the boiling, all of that physical work that goes into getting a dish in front of a diner. What this book is doing is trying to extend our definition of women's food work back a step closer to production. It looks at all the work that's involved in the factory creation of industrial foods like Perugina chocolates. It looks at the farm work that's involved in threshing grain and weeding rice patties. And even more broadly, it, it looks at women's food work that happens in the body itself with breastfeeding. All of these different types of food work come together in the book. And they come together in a specific way because we're looking at Italy's fascist period. So that's the 20 odd years of fascist rule from 1922 to 1945 uh, that's known as the fascist ventennial. And during the fascist ventennial, I argue that the regime approached cookery differently, that they take what I call a eugenic approach to food. So there's general agreement that food shapes the body. We know if we eat less, it makes a body smaller. If we eat more, it makes it larger. But during the fascist period, the regime was very concerned with the so-called health and prestige of the Italian race. And they took a eugenic approach to food. They wanted to change how the entire national body looked. And the way that they wanted to do that was by changing mother's diets in order to change what the next generation of Italians um, in utero and then in the future were going to look like. So they're um, finding the Italian fascist regime found ways through mother's cafeterias, through milk dispensaries to feed mother's different recipes with the hope in the hopes of creating a stronger, better, more fertile uh, Italian populace. And all these ideas come down to a term called autarky. So that basically just means making and eating more Italian foods. And I argue that this bid for eugenic cookery basically means treating national foodways as a recipe. So to prepare people as well as food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me in reading the book is how many echoes there were of some of the things that I've been looking at and thinking about uh, pre-war, interwar Japan and food policy, nutrition policy. So this concept of eugenic cookery, which I hope we'll talk about a little bit more in chapter one, was right up there. Although one of the fascinating divergences for me is I haven't seen much reference to things like breastfeeding, right? So this is this was really interesting for me to, expl to explore that as a new way for the state to sort of approach the body and the body politics of food and nutrition. Um, before we get into that chapter one, which I want to do in just a second, though, um, you note in your introduction that the chapters are sort of uh, put together in this iterative model, constructed place by place, object by object. And you've already started to touch on that, I think, a little bit in your explanation. Um, and uh, before we get to, to, to getting into that part of things, um, I want to jump 
to the epilogue, to the postscript, right? Um, you write this really fascinating, uh, what you call a note to future researchers. And this is where you stake out what I think is a very sort of common sense stance on primary sources and methodology. But I think it's also really informative for the audience to understand uh, where you're coming from and where your sources are coming from. Uh, not least because you write that the book is structured around three, three core arguments. The first of which is about materiality and embodiedness. Um, and so can you uh, call this sort of note a fourth argument, um, and, and I, which is sort of how I was seeing it, right? And I'd like you to um, give us an overview of those four arguments, right? If, if we can call it that, um, and how they fit in with the topics that are central to feeding fascism, experience of working class women, intersections of autarky, body, bi biopolitics, uh, and the implementation of fascist ideology um, in things like recipes, cookbooks, and also in the material, the built culture of uh, kitchen architecture. Sure. Let me begin with the postscript since that is a great lens into the approach to this book. It's called A Note to Future Researchers, and you can think of it almost as a bonus methodology section. I wrote A Note to Future Researchers with graduate students in mind. It's the advice that, uh, that I would give to my own students as they're approaching their first research projects. It's essentially a guide to how to look at regional archives. Often, researchers of Italian fascism go to the same big state sites. So the Archivio Centrale dello Stato, it's basically a massive government archive in Rome. Sometimes we'll go to some of the big ministry libraries, again, also in Rome. And these sites are wonderful, but they're one tool in the toolbox. Because they are government source archives, they contain government narratives. This book, Feeding Fascism, really hones in on working class women in Northern Italy. And it involves a jewel box set of uh, small regional museums and archives. So the question is, how do you find those? Um, Part of what helped this book to come together was the idea that uh, the people you study and the archives look a little bit alike. So this is a book that's full of objects and people, La Cucina Povera, The Cooking of the Poor, and none of that's going to be stored in a giant government archive. So my advice to future students, to future researchers who would want to look into these issues is to first mine the bibliographies and footnotes and also acknowledgement sections of the books they admire to get their first breadcrumb, the first place that they want to get back to. Once you have a foothold in some of these small archives, once you have, let's say two or three to get started with, um, then I recommend that they leave lots of space for exploration. You need to budget time to uh, physically get yourself out to these sites. So for example, the, uh, one of my favorite archives, the diary archive is in Pieve Santo Stefano outside of Arezzo. For a time, there was one bus that left every Tuesday at 6 a.m. from this other small regional center. And woe betide you if you finished work within a week because there was no other bus. 
So it's keeping that sort of additional research consideration in mind that there are special challenges to doing regional work. But there are special benefits too. And one of them is the amazing archivists and librarians and curators who run these sites. So the next step is once you finally get out there is not to rush. Um, making time to have a coffee with everybody on site, um, it is like getting to sit down with the most interesting book in the world. You get to have coffee with institutional memory. One place where that was particularly uh, useful for me in the research was with the um, Museo de la Figurina in Modena. This archive collects what's known as picture cards. So it's almost like um, baseball cards, but that were made to advertise food products. And um, basically they collect anything that you can fit in your wallet. Uh, everything from miniature calendars to perfume samples. Um, it's this amazing sensory archive. And given that I study women's food work, um, it was particularly useful in getting to some of the beautiful junk that uh, that's around us every day, but that people never save because everything about these objects tells you to throw it away. They're made of cheap cardboard, they're small, um, and they usually only survive because somebody forgot to throw them out. And that's how they end up in archives like this. So it is, um, it is an argument for the value of, of going to these, of, um, for the value of these archives and the need to treat them in a slightly different way than a large national archive. Yeah, and I think this um, sort of expansive view that you have of archival research uh, is in the same way that you have this expansive view of sort of what women's food work is to begin with. It was one of the things that made this a sort of interesting multi-dimensional read. Um, and that starts in uh, chapter one, uh, which is towards an autarkic Italy. Um, in this first chapter, uh, you're looking at how uh, fascist Italy's policies of food autarky underpinned those tabletop politics of the era. Uh, you talk about eugenic cookery here uh, and, uh, because you tell your story in this chapter in particular through some of these uh, material objects, uh, I, less I think some of the ephemera that you were just talking about, uh, more sort of solid stuff in a sense, a lot of it. But um, I wonder if you could tell us about one or two of the objects that you're using to, to think about autarky, uh, particularly just on a personal level. I was stuck by the autarkia bowl, which is figure 117 for those who are going to be picking up the book. Um, it's both visually striking and it tells an interesting part of the story. The Autarkia Bowl is one of my favorites. Um, and in fact, I ran into one of its cousins at the Guggenheim when they did their, uh, their futurism exhibit a few years back. It was seeing that bowl, which I had held first at the Wolfsonian Museum in Florida on my very first research trip ever as a grad. It was like watching a high school friend having made it to the Oscars strutting down the red carpet. I wanted to wave at the bowl and say, hey, I knew you win. So these, um, all of these objects uh, that are in the book, um, all of which have color pictures, there are over 83 um, really vivid images of bowls, pots, pans, ovens, toasters, um, kitchen architecture, and how it fits in um, with these broader city streets. That, uh, the Autarkia bowl that, uh, that you mentioned there, 
is a really complex object. So it shows a piece of bad poetry from Benito Mussolini. I believe it says, love bread, hearth of the home, perfume of the dining room, um, love bread. So it, it's truly terrible. Um, but this poem was absolutely everywhere in autarkic Italy. So again, autarky being this hyper-production of Italian products, the goal of, out, of pushing autarkic production was so that Italy could be economically self-sufficient. If Italy didn't need foreign trade partners, then it could act with military impunity. And that's exactly what it did when it invaded Ethiopia, which was a fellow League of Nations member in 1935. So for a dictatorial regime, it's very, it's very helpful to be able to stand alone economically. Sanctions ensued, and that's part of the reason why autarky became even more entrenched. It became even more important for the regime to be able to produce enough food um, to not need to get along with other nations. One of the most important foods was bread, and that's why Mussolini has this terrible poetry um, about respecting, loving, and conserving bread. In 1926, so very early fascism, um, Mussolini launched the battle for grain. And it was the first of um, a series of propaganda blitzes, all known as battles, the battle for rice, the battle for grapes, the battle for citrus. Um, if there was something that could be grown in Italy, Mussolini had a battle for it. Those campaigns were twofold. They aimed to get Italians to grow more grain where possible, and also to conserve it and to look for alternate foods, specifically rice, which is much more easy to grow in Italy. That part is um, fairly self-explanatory. Now, what's more where it gets particularly interesting is how this kind of plate was used in practice. So where did it come from? Um, this is a decorative plate. It's got, uh, in addition to the bad poetry, beautiful painting, large cornflower blue wheat shafts behind it, um, beautiful glaze, really shiny, it's oversized, and it has almost no marks of wear and tear. So what that suggests is that this plate was mostly used for display, that it was put up high on a shelf, um, rather than actually being used to hold bread on a dinner table. And that makes sense because it turns out the plate, this uh, bread bowl was given as a prize by the regime to prolific mothers. At different fascist rallies, and especially at Sagre, so these are new, basically newborn traditions. Fascism loves these. Um, they're newborn food traditions that claim to have been part of traditional Italian culture since time immemorial. Small towns um, are asked to create Sagre with uh, newly created traditional costumes, music, all invented from scratch in the 1930s. And at these festivals, fascism, uh, fascist officials would give out bread plates uh, as awards to mothers for having had six or more children. The average number of children um, for a mother to receive a plate like this would have been eight to 10. So this bread plate is where you start to see these different projects of women's production in fields and factories starting to come together 
with their reproductive projects for the regime having lots and lots of children. Yeah, and so this was one of the things that interested me about the way that you described this was this very performative aspect of fascism, whether it's the poetry, whether it's this really showy, gorgeous, I mean, it's a gorgeous piece, but these you know, showy uh, plates being given as prizes for these public events about having children and, you know, it's all about this uh, sort of public face of everybody doing fascism together, everybody doing autarky together. Um, and that, that was something that really uh, struck me. And it's why I'm, I was really happy that you could talk about that bowl. Of course, also you have the, the problem that several of the authors I've talked to recently have, which is of your research becoming suddenly and horrifyingly relevant again in ways that we never expected, right? Uh, having to talk about autarky and sanctions is, in, in the context that we are right now is something I think none of us imagined. Uh, so that, that must be that must be sort of strange for you, I would assume. It's very eerie. It's yeah. uh, I noticed it also the two times it has struck me is first currently in terms of um, sanctions with Russia. And it struck me again, quite forcefully thinking about parallels between the rise of Benito Mussolini and uh, and the some of Trump's strongman tactics. Uh, sort of a brief foray to the side, but contrary to popular belief, uh, Mussolini did not take power in a coup. Um, he was actually part of a coalition government and the March on Rome was, uh, as you suggest, part of that broader performativity of fascism. His rise was actually decided on in a quiet handshake deal in a hotel in Perugia, um, several uh, several weeks prior, and the uh, basically the the ruling elite at the time had been criticized for being sluggish, uh, sluggish and slow, and the parliament thought that Mussolini was generally full of bragging and bluster. That he was a silly character but they recognized him as wildly popular and they thought that they could use him to energize the party without realizing that he couldn't be controlled. You don't have to make the parallels any more explicit than that. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Um, so one of the other actually, sadly, parallels here, I think, is this interesting way in something that you talk about uh, in chapter two is also parallel. And that is that uh, you write, quote, under fascism, food brought rural Italy into focus. And this sort of interesting way that the rural versus uh, somehow a uh, dec decrepit or decadent or, or you know evil uh, in bourgeois or you know uh, something like that uh, becomes part of the politics of the era um, was, was something that I think comes out very interestingly first in uh, chapter two, which is agricultural labor and the fight for taste. So I have essentially a two-part question about this. Um, you've brought this uh, particular group of women, uh, is it Mondine? Is that more or less? Okay, I won't mangle it any more than that. Um, you're bringing them into focus as the protagonists here. So can you talk about the practical and ideological effects on uh, fascist autarkic food policies, uh, excuse me, of these policies on rural communities, uh, especially on these working class rural women, such as the Mondina? And second, um, you you during you draw out an interesting tension between fascism and the politics of these women as it's expressed in propaganda, also work songs, right? So propaganda by the regime, work songs by the women. Um, and this is the tension between the ideology of the Mondina as this sort of ideal fascist woman. Um, and then 
these women's own sort of subjectivity and agency. Uh, and this is a contrast that you bring out thinking uh, a little bit about James Scott's work, I think, on uh, weapons of the week, which I thought was a very interesting uh, angle on that. The Mondine are a fascinating group of women. They were the rice weeders. So Mondare means to weed. That's where their name comes from. And it was an almost entirely female agricultural force. So about 90% of weeders were women who migrated from all over Northern Italy to work on the rice fields for the 40 day weeding season. A lot of people know them from their beautiful filmic uh, portrayal in the neorealist film Rizzo Amaro or Bitter Rice. I think it's from Giuseppe De Santis. And uh, Silvana Mangano's beautiful portrayal of the rice weeders. These women were among many of the uh, women farm workers in the period. So despite fascism's claims that a woman's place was in the home, their huge need for more Italian food to feed the nation meant that in reality, many Italian women worked. And in, uh, at the working class level, um, probably about 80% of women were working at least part-time. So that includes the Mondine. This chapter offers an opportunity to look at a really interesting question, which is where, how do governments, uh, how do governments try to feed the poor and where do people disagree? Italian fascist policy tended to give people enough calories to live, but not any variety that you need to thrive. And the Mondine largely disagreed with this. So the regime was celebrating these women. They appeared to be everything that the fascist regime wanted. They um, they were physically large, they were muscular, um, rosy cheeks, uh, they tended to have many children, um, they appeared uh, rural, they appeared religious, um, they appeared to be um, the epitome of social conservatism. The only problem is that they tended to vote as far left as humanly possible. Um, so this is just in local elections because uh, they do not have uh, suffrage until 1946 after the fall of fascism. But they still made their voices heard at uh, socialist, communist, and anarchist meetings. And they really made themselves heard through their work songs. So in order to keep their bodies up, even as their spirits lagged, doing their eight hours of field work per day, uh, they sang songs about the difficulty of rice weeding, and also their uh, disgust for the regime, and um, in particular, their anger at its food policies. There, this book looks at some culinary protest songs, um, such as No More Rice and Beans, um, in, their, in the Morning There Is Milk, um, But No Sugar. Um, they go through the entire menu of the little bit that is provided, um, and then sing on and on of what is lacking. In addition to protesting through their songs, they also protested via foraging. So what this book, what this chapter looks at is some uniquely culinary forms of protest. And this is where James Scott's Weapons of the Week comes in. 
foraging, I would argue, is one of the weapons of the week in that it can pass undetected by the landowner, um, but it offers a great benefit to the mondine. And they had uh, local rules for what you could and couldn't take or steal. In fact, they use those two words very carefully, taking versus stealing. Stealing, they only use if uh, someone is pilfering from the landowner's stores, usually uh, taking potatoes from the pantry, something like that. That they consider to be unethical. But they, think, they did believe that taking something from the fields where they worked was perfectly permissible. So that meant that uh, there are many cases of them sneaking, uh, let's say, wild bird eggs to drink fresh from the fields. Um, also aquatic animals like salamanders, like frogs. Apparently those are very tasty boiled with risotto. And there is a recipe in the book that uh, comes from the Montine for that. I haven't tried it myself. Apparently you have to skin them first. These recipes were important to the Mondine because they added variety to the incredibly monotonous diet of um, usually of year old rice, which was about all the landowners would serve. They believed that working the land conferred ownership over its fruits. And they argue that if they had had the money to pay for additional foods, they certainly would have done so. But because their salaries were so low, they argued that they had, they had every right to uh, take unused foods from the fields, to work as gleaners, as the director Agnes Varda might say. Um, what they're arguing for there is not only, um, not only the fight for living, but also for living well. So not just bread, but roses too. Yeah, I thought that this, uh, the, the songs, uh, as you point out in here, are often very sensory, which is interesting, you know, for these people who are working with food um, and the ways that they're um, improvising, uh, you know, so sort of this bricolage morality of everyday life and common sense within this particularly, you know, hardcore uh, uh, ideological regime, right, of fascism, I think was really, was really interesting, that sort of flexibility of, of actual real everyday people on the ground and sort of, you know, finding ways to understand their, their worlds uh, and get by. I was also, I have to say, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that your, uh, your lockdown uh, didn't, you know, your, your new skills, did, you know, not, not sourdough bread, but frog skinning would have been a, a great new skill to add to your repertoire. I missed Michael. out on a hobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think we, well, maybe next time. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to uh, chapter three, which is raising children on the factory line. And so here we go from, from rice to chocolate. And also we get to this question of breastfeeding. And so again, just the, the sort of um, breadth of what you're looking at here in this sort of uh, interesting multidisciplinary and sort of uh, multi-field approach uh, comes out here because you're telling a complex story um, about this sort of tailorist rationalization of manufacturing both goods and people uh, and about how that relates to uh, gender and entrepreneurship in the chocolate factory. Um, so I want to start with a quote from the OMNI, I'll let you handle the Italian, which is the National Bureau for the Protection of Maternity and Infancy, um, where uh, you, uh, this is a quote that, from, from you about the OMNI, the ONMI, excuse me. Uh, you say it's propaganda served to naturalize a factory like vision of women's healthcare by casting breastfeeding and childbirth as forms of mass production belonging to the state, and by framing their interference as support for working class women 
fascism found an insidiously overarching way to control bodies and their growth through breastfeeding. So I'd like to unpack this uh, within the context of this narrative that you're uh, laying out here of Taylorist breastfeeding and the industrialization of motherhood, uh, the paradox of cottage industry, and the entrepreneurship in the time of fascism and its intersections with gender. This chapter throws open the doors of the Perugina Chocolate Factory. Part of what makes it so useful to look at is this is a factory that is founded and run by a woman, Luisa Spagnoli. You might actually know her not just from Perugina, which continues to produce uh, those dark blue foil wrapped uh, bocce chocolates today, but also from the Spagnoli Fashion House, which still makes sweaters. Those actually came out of this period um, and just footnote there, because we could talk about that more, but her fashion also mm -hmm. figures uh, into the politics of fascist autarky. For this chapter, there are two overarching arguments. One of them is that fascism uses many policies in factory settings that are at first glance progressive. So things like introducing breastfeeding rooms to factories. Um, if only we had some of those elements in factories today. But the problem is that they were incredibly regressive in their intent. None of this is aiming to actually improve the lives of women. What it is trying to do is get as many hours out of a worker as humanly possible. And returning to that idea of eugenic cookery, it's also trying to seize every single good produced in Italy, including breast milk as a property belonging to the state. So if a woman is working at the Perugina chocolate factory and has access to these breastfeeding rooms and she is being fed by the company cafeteria, that provides this element of total control. So what I are, and this brings me to um, the second argument. So not only are these ideas, which are, again, apparently progressive, um, are actually used for uh, surveillance and control. Um, the other argument that I make here is the difference, some, uh, turns on the difference between fascism as ideology, so what the state wanted to do, and fascism as state, what it actually did. When we look at Perugina and other private food companies, we see that um, fascist goals, like having total control over every aspect of people's lives, including what they were eating and how they were raising their children, was generally not something that the regime um, had a ton of success with. They didn't have enough funding. They didn't have enough infrastructure, particularly into the countryside. Um, but you know who did have that kind of money and that level of control was industry. And given that fascism was providing financial incentives um, for private companies to at least herald its goals like autarky and like pronatalism, I argue it was actually private companies um, that enacted a lot of fascist goals. And further, that private companies uh, like Perugina were more successful than the state itself in entrenching fascism in people's everyday lives. Yeah, I think that last point is, is so important. It's something that we uh, also talk about in the context of Japan and you know, to the degree to which there's this debate about whether it was fascist or not. There's also a degree uh, to which there's a debate about um, whether it was authoritarian or not and, and in what ways. And, you know, one of the 
difficult things about understanding these regimes is the degree to which um, not only uh, government and government agencies and cutouts, but also uh, you know, the private sector um, and individuals and communities are also you know, run, t- running with these agendas, right, where it benefits them. And also, as you point out, though, in the, in, interestingly, in the, in the previous chapter, uh, resisting them in very interesting ways as well uh, when it suits their purposes. Um, I was also reminded, you know, the, the, the thing about breastfeeding, that was, I was, you know, the, the, your point that it's this very regressive policy, um, it reminds me a little bit of the coffee break and the smoke break, right, where it sounds like you're getting a break, but you realize you're just putting stimulants in your body to, so that you could be the better worker. And it, it had that sort of feel to it, right, but on a much more pervasive kind of level, because you're at, it's, it's the mother's body, right, and, you know, building that next generation of Italians um, through breastfeeding. Uh, so let's move on to chapter four, uh, which is recipes for exceptional times. And I, I guess I, I learned in the introduction here uh, today, uh, listening to you, that this might have been sort of a homecoming for you since your initial interest was in recipes. Um, recipes and recipe collections have already in the book made an appearance in chapter two. Um, here you're digging down deeply into the careers of a handful of prominent women cookbook authors, uh, and you're positioning them as representative of the broader politics of bourgeois women under fascism. Um, and this is a politics uh, relatively united in supporting the regime's linkage. This is you know, sort of building off of what I was just thinking about a moment ago, um, and this linkage of the individual body and household to the national economy. Uh, you call this the merging of home and home front. Uh, these authors were working within the context of at least two crises. The obvious one is rationing, absolute shortages of key ingredients. The less obvious one, at least for me, was related to class, and I thought that came out very nicely uh, in this chapter. So maybe we can start there uh, and try to unwind the importance of these cookbooks and authors as they were working to shape national cuisine and national culture, even as food and foods uh, became defined more by their absence. Particularly in the later years of fascism. So we're now getting into the late 1930s. Rationing becomes a central feature of how women are approaching their, of how women are approaching uh, markets and stores and how they're deciding to feed their families. So to address, uh, to address this challenge, cookbook authors, uh, most famously Petronilla, who is a pen name for Dr. Amalia Folja, um, one of the first graduates, uh, I think the first female graduate of Milan's Politecnico, enter into the breach with the plan to translate regime policy into day-to-day instructions for women. And there is a spectrum of that goes all the way from consent to resistance in these cookbooks. Uh, Petronilla, for example, generally objects to the regime, and I we can get to that uh, toward that emerges more towards the end of her works. Other authors like Livia Morelli expressly celebrate the regime and use that as a way to promote their books. Rationing appears in these cookbooks in the late 1930s, and it begins to change the way that Italians are eating. For the first time in recipes, all of the quantities appear listed at the start of a recipe. So you'll see things like 500 grams of rice, uh, two grams of butter, chicken, etc. The reason why was so that 
cooks could consult a recipe at a glance. And if they didn't have any more rice available on their ra- uh, from their rations, they would know to skip past that recipe. And the names of recipes change too. You start to see recipes for things like chicken soup without the chicken or meat, meat sausage without the meat. There is the appearance of more foraged food. This is uh, similar to the foods that the Mondine were eating. Women go further and further into the countryside in order to stock their pantries. Women also began to use less common organ meats. You start to see things like blood soup, grilled hearts. The foods that are plentiful, like eggs and vegetables, utterly take over the menu. Cabbage ends up in places that you will not see it outside of wartime, including in the dessert section. And in terms of eggs, which remain plentiful, meringue covers the menu. So in extreme brevity, the recipes start to get very weird towards, uh, towards the end of fascism. And it's not just the ingredients that change, it is also the preparation styles because it wasn't just food that was being rationed, it was also gas. So you start to see many more cold recipes, the idea being that if you're gonna heat up a pot, you're only gonna do it once. And that soup should taste, taste as good cold as it does warm. These are changes that we now have in recipes today where we still have all the ingredients listed at the start, um, where we have cooking times and preparation strategies. So part of that push was rationing. But the other push, as you mentioned, is differences in class. In this period, the person who was cooking changed. Um, Italy also experienced the servant crisis uh, in addition to many Northern European countries. And middle-class and upper-middle-class women for the first time found themselves without a dedicated maid or cook and entered the kitchen uh, to prepare their family's meals really for the first time. They were utterly at sea and a boom in domestic literature results to fill this economic, uh, to address this economic opportunity. It's these authors, I would argue, uh, who are I would, I would argue that these authors are using fascism towards their own professional ends. Um, they're, using fashion almost, they're using fascism almost as fashion, as a way to make their work timely and to sell books. You'll see a number of recipes that open by decrying the sanctions and then offer, as, uh, and then offer comfort to middle-class readers saying, but don't worry, I'm still gonna show you how to save face when you have guests over. You will prepare something so elegant that people thought that you were not the one in the kitchen at all. Yeah, uh, this was again, sort of fascinating for me as somebody who's working, who's been for a while now working a little bit on some of the same period uh, in, in Japanese 
nutrition policy and cooking. And uh, a while back, I was looking at what's essentially the sort of Japanese um, National Nutrition Institute official cookbook, right, from the 1920s. And it's interesting how, in some ways, Japan was kind of ahead on that sort of um, quantifiable, tailorist uh, approach to food. Um, and again, but how also that changed so much uh, in wartime. But I, the thing that interested me most, though, was this idea of um, having these middle class women for the first time being faced with a kitchen. And it's at the exact same time that the kitchen itself is under such crisis because of uh, rationing. Um, and this actually gets us to chapter five, where the kitchens themselves are also changing because of fascism in terms of not just the kitchen as a sort of entity or ideological space, but as a physical built space. Uh, because this chapter is model fascist kitchens is about the material culture of the kitchen. Um, and it's always an embodiment of ideology. In this chapter, you uh, engage in what you call a sort of careful accounting of the architectural history of lived space in order to show that um, to show how, quote, the kitchen shows how daily actions fed fascism um, and how these daily practices were producing individual and collective bodies. And it's in this context that you write, the gleaming white surfaces of ideal fascist kitchens reflect the material connections between autarky and design. So I think that's a great jumping off place for you to talk about this chapter. Under fascism, kitchens change uh, quite a bit. It's really important to dig into the architectural specifics, I would argue, because this is an area where it can, if you look at kind of before and after pictures, if you look at those dark cave-like conditions of a 19th century kitchen where it's, um, where the kitchen is essentially the entire house. It's just one room filled with uh, people with cows and cats and dogs and chickens. Um, and then put it next to a picture of one of these gleaming white laboratory-like kitchens that emerged in the 1930s, it can look like pure modernization. It can look like it's utterly divorced from politics. And yet it was under um, the fascist regime, again, particularly in the late 1930s, that uh, this boom in architectural production takes place. It rhymes with these broader moves of people moving from the countrysides uh, to give up that low paid rice weeding and uh, poor paid uh, farm work and to take up the relatively more lucrative uh, but still fairly poorly paid work in factories. And in some cases, um, the, work of, uh, the work of maintaining a, uh, a house. So in the in these new these structures are being newly built under fascism. The exurbs of cities like uh, Milan, Genova, Rome are swelling with new arrivals, and the regime builds new public housing projects in order to uh, in order to provide housing. And because they're building these houses, they are allowed to um, they are able to say who gets to live in one of these spaces. It tends to be um, working class folks who can't afford to live elsewhere. And you can only get one of these houses if you are a prolific parent. So that's one more way that pronatalism is figuring into these projects. And the regime also uses these kitchens in order to support their autarkic projects. All of that gleam is coming from autarkic industries. All of the walls are, um, 
either blue or white panels produced by the ceramics industry in Emilia-Romagna. The floors are linoleum, that newly synthesized uh, um, that newly synthesized material coming from Milanese laboratories. And even all the pots and pans, instead of being um, the heavy iron or expensive copper of the past, they are all from, uh, they're all made from Italian aluminum. So all of that gleam and shine is speaking to Italian autarkic production. Um, when we talk about food under fascism, we often stop at food itself, at how the dishes and ingredients were changing. But if you look at the kitchen, you can see that places like mining and chemistry um, and all of these other shadow industries that make stuff are actually involved in these big regime projects. And that gleam of fascism speaks to another project, and that is hygiene. These kitchens were built to be small sanitary laboratories where all you were going to do was produce a lot of food cleanly and quickly. Because the other face of the Italian pronatalist project of having lots of kids also means pushing down levels of infant mortality. And part of the way that the regime's trying to do that is by cleaning up houses on the inside. Lots of flow of air and water. It's the first time that you see electricity and um, hydraulics in a lot of public housing. And most importantly, glean, the gleam of aluminum or ceramics or linoleum, um, that's the mark of, com of uh, daily cleaning. So if you're not constantly wiping down those surfaces, they show a mess really fast. And that's particularly important because the women who are living, who are living in these uh, houses and who are um, working in these kitchens are, are likely to be beneficiaries of the, um, of the mother's cafeterias, the milk dispensaries, all those food projects that are run by the state where you receive food, but on certain conditions. And one of those conditions is that you consent to visits from, um, they're actually called the visitatrice, the visitors. These were um, volunteers who were frequently the wives of fascist officials, um, upper middle class women who would visit the houses of working class women to see if their housekeeping was up to snuff. With all of these new autarchic materials, the regime could also support their pronatalist projects because the fascist visitatrice or the fascist visitors, sounds even more eerie, could tell the cleanliness of the apartment at a glance. That's that's fascinating. I actually, uh, in something I wrote relatively recently, there was a, a wonderful uh, newspaper article I came across about um, the same. Uh, they refer to them as orekireki, um, so the uh, the the class of society, I guess, society with a capital S. Um, we're doing tours of uh, lower middle class, working class uh, trash disposal during wartime, right? And it's the same, but it's the exact same idea. It's about hygiene and waste, right? And about this sort of monitoring of um, the uh, practices 
of the uh, lower classes, right, by society, capital S. It's just a really interesting overlap to see that. And the other thing that was interesting for me, just a, a huge corrective in my understanding of things, and maybe this is, you know, problem with uh, being being uh, an American, but I had sort of associated that uh, gleaming chrome uh, and, and, you know, aluminum and those surfaces kind of with the, um, the post-war American dream that got sold to Europe. And it was sort of, it was fascinating for me to realize that that was actually part of the, the fascist um, politics and aesthetics of hygiene uh, as well. So uh, speaking of the, the post-war, which is you know what that is all about, um, in your conclusion, you go on to ruminate a little bit about the legacies of these fascist uh, autarkic food policies on post-1945 Italy. You're not limiting yourself to just thinking about food as, as you know, throughout the book. Um, and one of my favorite observations in the conclusion is you say, ironically, the fascist fantasy of hyperproductive, streamlined, hygienic kitchen work materialized after the fall of the regime during the economic boom. Um, and this, I think, pairs and contrasts nicely with your argument that under fascism, these things that were uh, traditional were redefined as patriotic, both in very large scare quotes, um, but that after the war, what had been uh, fascist foodways returned to being understood as traditional uh, Italian foodways. This is part of the reason that uh, that it matters so much to look at women's food work writ large, because um, Italian food itself is famously conservative. Um, it is very resistant to change. And as we see under fascism, what was poor becomes patriotic. So it's really much of this is a simple recasting. There were always there was always risotto. There were always large vegetable stews. What does change is actually the architecture around cooking, um, the shape of those kitchens, which are still in use today, um, and the patterns of factory work, all of those time motion studies um, that get into the uh, uh, that get into the kitchens, which then become small factories themselves. Um, so the real legacies of this period are in how people cook and where. Um, less than the food itself. It really is the feeding uh, that stays, that it is such a um, invisible legacy of this period and that is so worth looking at. Ruth Ben-Ghiat uh, famously asked in a New Yorker essay, why are there still so many fascist monuments standing in Rome? And monuments are a little bit easier to, uh, to recognize. Um, so she notes that uh, the fascist period was a period of intense architectural production. Um, so a lot of stuff got built during this period. Um, sometimes people make this as part of an argument uh, for fascism wasn't all bad. Uh, my counter argument would be, you can produce a whole lot of things if you don't value human life. Um, it does make architecture a lot faster. Um, so, um, but at what cost? Um, so in any case, um, what she looks at with monuments, you could see this, um, all of this uh, popular culture as being the other wing of that, uh, of that phenomenon, that there are still huge numbers of fascist kitchens in use in Rome, in Milan, um, in the urban excerpts. Um, a lot of the farming policies stayed the same. Um, so it's a lot of that infrastructure the um, the legislative junk and the ways in which we feed, farm, and organize factory work that stayed. 
And so much of this is because, to return to the argument of um, Perugina, um, so many policies for how to approach work became naturalized during this very dark period. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, dark period seems to be the place where we're going to be uh, beginning to wrap up here. Uh, I hate to do that, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, so I, boy, that, we, we've, it's hard to segue out of that. Uh, so I do want to ask you before, before I let you go, uh, what you're working on now uh, in terms of uh, a current project, if it's anything that's uh, building off of this or whether you've embarked on something new, uh, like, you know, frog skinning or something like that. You know, I can I can think of uh, a slightly more hopeful note to uh, to conclude our our last section on, and that is that um, by being able to illuminate this history, um, we can use these different spaces. We can use these spaces in different ways, and that's something that you even see women starting to do during the fascist period itself. Um, that even if you have material culture, whether it's a kitchen or a pot or a pan um, that's given to you, you don't have to use it in the way that it's prescribed. And there are examples of creative misuse, uh, more of those uh, weapons of the week scattered across history. And those can be examples for how to um, continue to fight uh, different forms of control today. The project that I'm working on now um, turns to um, basically looks at a broader, it, it takes a transnational approach to looking at food and fascism. That project is called The Bean and the Machine, and it's the global history of coffee under fascism. So this new project look uses coffee and cafe culture in order to understand how farming politicized under fascism. Um, and it follows a, it offers a new, it offers a new historical model of triangular trade. It follows the, it follows Italians from the bottom of the coffee plantation hierarchy when they, uh, in the mass exoduses and immigration to Brazil in the 1890s to the rise of espresso machine technology at this, uh, around the turn of, uh, at the turn of the century in Italy. Um, and then the flip in the hierarchy with the invasion of East Africa in the 1930s. Um, and then it finally comes full circle to examine the, um, to examine coffee culture today. So by the end of this book, hopefully people will be able to understand um, why today you can as easily sip a espresso in Asmara Eritrea or a macchiato in Sao Paulo as you can in Florence. Well, as somebody who has a mocha pot sitting on the stove waiting for me after our interview, uh, I'm absolutely fascinated and really looking forward to getting a chance to read that. And I hope uh, whenever it's done, you'll consider coming back on the podcast. Uh, but for now, um, thank you for spending the time with us and for uh, arranging the uh, 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 time schedule here with uh, being you know, far away. Uh, and thank you. Uh, and hopefully we'll uh, be able to talk again soon. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Nathan.